0: Log Talk Radio.
1: This is Abayomi Azikwe and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is Thursday, uh, February the 8th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition uh, of the Pan-African Journal, this special edition of our program. Later on, uh, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the Iraqi resistance forces having pledged to respond to the bombings by the Pentagon. Yemeni resistance leaders explain their strategic objectives Representatives of Sudan and Iran have held a meeting in Tehran, and the World Health Organization has issued a report on the spread of cholera on the African continent. In the second and third hours, we listen to a panel discussion uh, from Electronic Intifada on the situation in Palestine. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with the Um Kaltum Orchestra. Uh, this is from a concert uh, broadcast uh, over a Radio Cairo in 1960.
2: Let's listen in. Ladies
3: <laughs>
2: and the you from the The صيحة البعث والفرية القاهرة التي خرجت منها دعوة الإخاء والتضامن القاهرة التي انبعثت منها همسة الحب وحديثنا الليلة في هذا المجال عن همسة الحب همسة الحب التي حملها صوتها منذ سنين وسيظل صوتها يحملها الينا حيثما كنا في اي مكان من الوطن العربي سنين وسنين طويلة باذن الله سيداتي وسادتي الليلة تبدأ القاهرة موسمها الغنائي حيث تبدأ حفلات كوكب الشرق السيدة حفلة الليلة تقيمها إذاعة الجمهورية العربية المتحدة من القاهرة في دار سينما أوفرا التي تقع في قلب القاهرة ومن قلب القاهرة <تصفيق> سوف ثلاثة تويت بعض توكب الشرق سيدة ام الى الملايين هامسا بالحب بكل ما فيه ينفرج السكار الان سادتي وسادتي عن توكب الشرق السيدة ام كلثوم التي تقف الان وصع عضاء طرفتها الموسيقية تحيي الجماهير الغفيرة التي ملأت كل مكان في دار سينما افرة هذه الجماهير التي تستقبلها وهي تبدأ ومعفلاتها الغنائية سيداتي و اولى اغنيات سوكب الشرق في سهرة الليلة هي اغنية حجرتك التي كتبها احمد رامي ولحنها رياض الصنباطي سيداتي ام كلثوم. هكذا سيداتي وسادتي انطلقت همسه الحب وهكذا سيداتي وسادتي كان التجاوب مع همسه الحب وبقدر ما كانت الهمسه ناعمة عذبه في منتهى العذوبه كانت التجاوب قويا عارما في منتهى القوه نابعاً من قلوب دغدغتها نغمات الخب وهمساته ونسماته التي حملها إلينا صوت أم كلسوم في أولى حفلاتها الغنائية لهذا الموسم وفي أولى أغنياتها بهذا الحق وكانت أغنية حجرتك التي كتبها أحمد رامي
1: Welcome back. Uh, That was uh, Um Kaltun's orchestra uh, from a live radio broadcast uh, in 1960. Uh, Music uh, from the North African state of Egypt. And, of course, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, special uh, worldwide radio broadcast. Uh, this Thursday, uh, February the 8th, uh, 2024, we're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we'd like to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment, and these are some of the headlines in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. The head of the Popular Mobilization Forces in Iraq, uh, Faleh al Fayad, yesterday threatened to respond to the attacks carried out by the United States on several sites in Iraq, on Friday evening, uh, saying that they would not go unnoticed. Al-Fayyad said that the attacks were a direct targeting of the Popular Mobilization Forces, adding that the blood of those killed will not be a cheap political currency, according to the Arab World News Agency. The United States launched strikes on several sites in Iraq and Syria over the last several days, uh, with President Joe Biden saying that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard and its affiliated armed factions use these sites to attack American forces in the Middle East. The spokesperson for the Iraqi government, uh, Basim al-Awadi, reported the death of 16 people, including civilians, and 25 injuries in the attacks. He denied any prior coordination with Iraqi officials regarding the strikes. The Iraqi foreign minister responded by recalling the U.S. charged affairs in uh, Baghdad to hand him an official note of protest regarding the attack that targeted military and civilian sites in the country. In Yemen, uh, according uh, to the uh, Al Mahadeen website, the West's failure to recognize Ansar Allah as a revolutionary movement may escalate the risk of a full-blown war uh, with the West paying a high price, ultimately leading to its defeat in West Asia. The Ansar Allah movement uh, has lately attracted international attention by boldly defying major world powers, particularly the United States, through their military actions to support Palestine amid the ongoing Israeli genocide in Gaza. This decision comes at a time when even larger Arab nations refrain from such interventions, despite Yemen itself enduring a decade of U.S.-backed Saudi-led aggression and grappling with a severe humanitarian crisis due to a years-long land, sea, and air blockade in an attempt to thwart Yemen's efforts and hinder Sana'a from enforcing its solidarity with Gaza, Washington, and the U.K. launched a series of attacks on the country in recent weeks with a plethora of media outlets shining their spotlights on the Ansar Allah, whom they call Houthis, uh, hosting or, Orientalist pundits attempting to crack their puzzle. The U.S., U.K. and Israel persistently describe Ansar Allah as an Iranian proxy, disregarding the movement's autonomy and independence. This misunderstanding of this revolutionary movement may escalate the risk of a full-blown war in the region, with the West paying a high price, ultimately leading to its defeat in West Asia. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire, a um, worldwide uh, uh, news agency, and um, this is our Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal for today, uh, Thursday, February 8, 2024. In other news, uh, Iran and Sudan have had a high-level meeting. Both countries have expressed their intent to cooperate and rekindle their relationship as well as their condemnation of the Israeli genocide in Gaza. Today, Sudan's acting Foreign Minister Ali Sadiq visited Iran and met with his counterpart, Hossein Amir Abdullahin and President Ibrahim Raisi. This is the first high-level diplomatic engagement between the two countries since severing ties in 2016, which indicates a renewed commitment to rekindling uh, Tehran-Khartoum's relations, according to Iranian Foreign Ministry spokesperson Nassar Kana. And finally, the World Health Organization has issued a report uh, dealing with the increasing uh, incidences of cholera on the African continent. Cholera outbreaks are now occurring in several countries, the most notable of which being Zambia and Zimbabwe in Southern Africa. More than 26,000 cases of cholera and 700 deaths were reported in 10 African nations in January. Fiona Braca, spokesperson for the World Health Organization Regional Office for Africa, revealed this on Tuesday. Quote, in the first four weeks of this year, 10 countries in the World Health Organization Africa region have reported over 26,000 cases and 700 deaths, which is almost twice the number reported during the same period in 2023. Braca explained in a press release emphasizing that the risk of disease spreading further remains high. Cholera outbreaks are now occurring in several countries, the most notable of which are Zambia and Zimbabwe, uh, Mozambique, Tanzania, the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, Ethiopia, and Nigeria are also reporting active outbreaks. And uh, that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal special worldwide uh, radio broadcast for Thursday, February 8th, 2024, uh, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. doing the track entitled, You Lost a Good Man. And this is the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Thursday, February 8th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. And right now we want to move to Electronic Intifada, one of the primary sources on the situation uh, in Palestine. And this is uh, day 124 uh, that was uh, recorded yesterday of the siege upon Gaza. Let's listen in.
4: Hello and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for Wednesday, February 7th. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues Ali Abunima, Asa Wynn-Stanley, John Elmer, and Tamara Nassar. It's day 124 of Israel's genocide in Gaza. We have a full show for you today, including a report from a protest, protest outside of Secretary of State Antony Blinken's house, news about a major boycott victory in Japan against an Israeli weapons maker explicitly as a consequence of the International Court of Justice's ruling, a discussion on the possibilities of a ceasefire, and of course, analysis of the Palestinian resistance's defense of Gaza. But first, here is the news. Israel's military campaign in Gaza has resulted in at least 100,000 Palestinians killed, injured, or missing and presumed dead around 4% of the population of 2.3 million as it enters its fifth month, reports our colleague Maureen Claire Murphy. The following is from her latest report. 60% of the more than 27,000 Palestinian fatalities recorded by the health ministry in Gaza since October 7th were women and children. At least 17,000 children in Gaza are unaccompanied or separated from their family, according to UNICEF. Khan Yunus in southern Gaza was bearing the brunt of the bombardment while Palestinian resistance groups fought Israeli ground forces across much of Gaza in recent days, the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs has reported. Israeli forces bombed residential blocks and high-rises in multiple areas of Khan Yunus on Monday, causing significant destruction. Heavy fighting continues near Nasser Medical Complex and Al-Amal Hospital in Khan Yunis, quote, jeopardizing the safety of medical staff, the wounded and the sick, as well as thousands of internally displaced persons, according to the UN. While details of a possible ceasefire are being discussed in Doha, Maureen writes that, quote, Yoav Galant, the Israeli defense minister, told troops that, quote, we are completing the mission in Hanunis and we will reach Rafah as well and eliminate every terrorist there who threatens to harm us. Three prominent Palestinian human rights groups warned Monday that an expansion of Israel's ground operations in Rafah in the southernmost most area of Gaza appears to be imminent. Such an escalation, quote, would significantly exacerbate the ongoing genocidal acts, perpetrated by the Israeli military and authorities against the Palestinian population in Gaza, the rights groups warned. Maureen Claire Murphy writes that, quote, some 1.3 million Palestinians, more than half of Gaza's population, are currently concentrated in Rafah after being displaced from other areas of the territory. Given the current population density of the area, an attack on Rafah could, quote, result in an unprecedented loss of Palestinian lives, according to the rights groups. It may also force hundreds of thousands of Palestinians in Gaza to flee to Egypt, quote, which would constitute the crime of forcible deportation, the groups added. The potential scenario could surpass the number of Palestinians forcibly expelled by Zionist militias and the Israeli military during the 1948 Nakba, they said. To that end, the majority of all buildings in Gaza have likely been damaged or destroyed, according to an analysis of satellite data, Maureen reports. The UN estimates that more than 650,000 displaced Palestinians in Gaza, quote, will have no home to return to and that many more will be unable to return immediately due to the level of damage surrounding infrastructure, as well as the risk posed by explosive remnants of war. For much more reportage on the situation on the ground in Gaza, read Maureen Claire Murphy's latest report, Ceasefire Elusive as Gaza Genocide, enters fifth month on electronicintifada.net. Meanwhile, UNRWA, the UN Agency for Palestine Refugees, will be forced to shut down its operations as soon as the end of the month if funding is not restored, according to the agency's director, Philippe Lazzarini. Israel has not let up on the attacks against the agency and humanitarian aid deliveries. The UN agency said that a convoy carrying food aid was hit by Israeli naval gunfire while waiting to move into northern Gaza on Monday. 16 donor countries, including the U.S., the agency's largest funder, suspended $440 million worth of aid after Israel made unverified allegations that a handful of UNRWA's staff in Gaza were involved in the October 7th attacks. However, as Sharon Jang at Truthout reported on Tuesday, quote, a key Israeli intelligence dossier used by countries to justify defunding the primary aid group for Palestinian refugees contains no evidence to back up Israel's allegations against the group. Israeli officials, Jang writes, were reportedly shocked that the information had even gotten out to foreign officials. The New York Times reported that, quote, Israel has made so many accusations against UNRWA over the years that no one expected this claim to be the one that stuck, the Israeli foreign ministry officials said. Our colleague Michael F. Brown writes that, quote, Israel has long sought to disrupt and destroy UNRWA. The UN agency established in 1949 is specifically to protect the Palestinian refugees expelled by Israel during the Nakba. UNRWA provides essential health and educational services to Palestinian refugees in the occupied West Bank and Gaza Strip, as well as in Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. Israel's long-held intention to destroy UNRWA was revitalized late last year when Israel's foreign ministry privately laid out plans to push the agency out of Gaza altogether, Michael F. Brown writes. Maureen Claire Murphy, in her report for the Electronic Intifada last week, writes that, quote, Palestinian human rights groups warned that the suspension of funds leading to the halt of humanitarian aid in Gaza could constitute complicity in genocide. This is particularly so in the case of the U.S. and Germany, two of UNRWA's primary donors. The Lemkin Institute for Genocide Prevention said that the decision to to suspend funding, quote, represents a shift by several countries from potential complicity in genocide to direct involvement in engineered famine. The Institute added that, quote, it is an attack on what remains of personal security, liberty, health and dignity in Palestine. The UN Agency for Palestine Refugees is the largest provider of humanitarian aid in Gaza, where the vast majority of the population depend on it for their sheer survival, UNRWA said last week. Two-thirds of Gaza's population of 2.3 million are refugees registered with UNRWA. More than 150 UNRWA staff are among the some 27,000 people killed in Gaza since October 7th. And more than 140 of the agency's facilities have been damaged or destroyed, including its Gaza City headquarters. And that was from Maureen Claire Murphy's report, funding freeze could halt UNRWA operations by end of month. And for more, read Michael Brown's in-depth analysis, states gutting UNRWA are complicit in genocide, both on electronicintifada.net. And an update from a story we covered last week on the live stream. On last Wednesday's show, we were joined by our friend Leila haddad who talked about her role testifying as one of the plaintiffs in a federal case brought by Palestinian-Americans against the Biden administration over complicity in Israel's genocide. The judge issued his ruling last week, and even though he dismissed the case on jurisdictional grounds, explaining that the court lacked power to resolve a matter of foreign policy, He did acknowledge the, quote, undisputed evidence that Israel's ongoing siege against Palestinians in Gaza is, quote, intended to eradicate a whole people and therefore plausibly falls within the international prohibition against genocide. U.S. District Judge Jeffrey White called it a rare instance where, quote, the preferred outcome is inaccessible to the court quote, it is every individual's obligation to confront the current siege in Gaza, the judge wrote. And Catherine Gallagher, senior staff attorney with the Center for Constitutional Rights, said that, quote, while we strongly disagree with the court's ultimate jurisdictional ruling, we urge the Biden administration to heed the judge's call to examine and end its deadly course of action. Together with our plaintiffs, we will pursue all legal avenues to stop the genocide and save Palestinian lives, Gallagher said. For more, read my piece, U.S. judge rebukes Biden's unflagging support for war on Gaza. And finally, an excerpt from one of our feature stories written by our contributor, Sundos Al-Fayoumi, in Gaza. Quote, I am very worried about my sister, Dua, she writes. She is a patient at Al-Amel Hospital. Located in Khan Yunus in southern Gaza, the hospital has been under Israeli siege for more than two weeks. Dua has been paralyzed because of an Israeli attack on Al-Burej refugee camp central Gaza in October. She needs surgery outside Gaza, but the siege on the hospital means that she cannot leave. Read more from Sundos Al-Fayyumi's feature, My Sister is Under Siege in a Gaza Hospital on electronicintifada.net. Those are just some of the many stories we've published on the Electronic Intifada over the last few days. Head over to electronicintifada.net for much. Thank you again for joining us. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. And as Antony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, tours the region, his house near Washington, D.C., continues to be the site of 24-hour protests against his direct complicity in and support for Israel's genocide. Blinken and his family hear the protests day and night and see them whenever they leave home. We're joined now by Hazami Barmada, an activist and social entrepreneur who has been leading the protest. Hazami, it's so good to have you with us today. Hi, thank you all for having me. So tell us uh, what you are up to right now, where you are, and what's, uh, what's been happening.
0: So we are here on the side of the road, what is behind me. Right here is the home of Secretary of State Anthony Blinken on this very narrow uh, road in McLean, Virginia. We have been camping out in makeshift tents on both sides of the road um, from the evening of the um, ICJ, the International Court of Justice, um, order and also uh, coincidentally the eve of the day, the, the federal case, court case. Uh, against the Biden administration, specifically Blinken, uh, Biden, and Austin. Um, we are out here, and every time they leave or enter their home, as you might see behind me, we douse the street and the cars with this red, symbolic blood of Qasna's children, and we have signs all over the place that reminds uh, Blinken of his direct role in enabling, funding, normalizing, endorsing, and uh, in essence perpetuating uh, ongoing genocide against the Palestinian people.
5: And uh, Hazami, uh, you told us that, uh, we we know that Anthony Blinken today is uh, in Israel to discuss the uh, latest ceasefire proposal, and uh, you told us a little while ago that his wife just left uh, home a little while ago. Did she hear you?
0: Yes, absolutely. The wife of Blinken comes by us numerous times a day. Um, so we know they've changed the security apparatus of how she comes in and out of the home uh, due to her growing discomfort that we've not only heard about directly from both the police and, and the security uh, staff themselves, but um, also in the way she drives, so that we are lined on both sides of the road and right by the gate. Um, so we see her entering and exiting. We also see the children um, in the car, although they've uh, put blankets and towels over the windows uh, of the vehicle. And uh, she not only sees us and hears us, um, but is also very uh, clearly uncomfortable. And for those that don't know, um, Blinken's wife, Evan Ryan, actually works for the administration. She's a cabinet secretary. And Blinken himself um, has a company which she benefits financially from uh, that actually supports national security, um, which, you know, the military industrial complex is connected to. And so, um, you know, we, we all can say that, unfortunately, in Gaza, uh, you know, there's constantly this idea of collective uh, collateral damage. Um, there is not, you know, uh, you don't spare the rest of society just because you're supposedly going after Hamas. And I often say, um, two cards that pass by here is if this was an operation to eliminate Hamas, if Hamas was hiding in Tel Aviv, would you bomb it to the ground? And if your answer is no, then it's not about Hamas. It's about the fact that you perceive Palestinian lives to be dispensable, yeah. which is why we have no problem at all um, screaming at and targeting uh, the family and the fo- the folks that work to enable uh, Blinken living this life behind uh, this, this, uh, this wall. I must also say that the security fence has been added recently uh, with mesh, um, so you can't see as easily through the gate, and then additional cameras have been added to the various entrances um, here as we've been out here.
5: So I think we actually have a video. It's not from today, it's from another day when you actually uh, greeted Anthony Blinken in person, uh, at least when he was in his car. We can take a look at that. Now he can clearly see you. There you go. There goes the the blood. You must have a significant uh, budget for red paint.
0: (laughs) We have a lot of amazing volunteers who actually make this paint for us. The paint recipe itself is one of the most asked about questions that I get. Um, on my social media, um, we uh, mix it with tempera paint, which is all washable and food coloring and cornstarch, so it is not only um, edible but also safe uh, to use, which is important just from our uh, ability to continue to do this type of action. We've actually seen Blinken numerous times. Uh, the The video you just showed is uh, right before his last trip to Tel Aviv. Um, so we've actually been here uh, repeatedly since then, um, and uh, just said goodbye to him on his way out the door this time around also, on his way also to the Middle East. He's been there numerous times since we've been here. But, yes, we see his motorcade coming to and from work numerous times a day, sometimes um, every single day for the last couple of weeks.
5: And and you, and you you are you planning to stay there for the long term?
0: You know, honestly, I, I didn't necessarily have a plan in mind when we did this. We've been doing direct actions as a group, a grassroots movement, um, now for, you know, over 110 days all over what we call institutions of power. We physically put our bodies on the ground uh, doing die-ins. Uh, we've done blood dumps in front of staff entrances of the White House and State Department where staff literally have to physically walk over the blood that we dump. So as a... a we can
4: actually look at that. Yeah, let's take yeah. a look. Yep. So they have to walk through this on their way to work. They
0: do. They do. And it's
4: extremely uncomfortable. And that's exactly the point.
0: Our goal is to censor the discomfort. Our goal is to highlight the hypocrisy. Our goal is to make sure that American uh, officials and folks that work in this administration, and there they are trying to go around us, for example, uh, and I tell them, you can try to go around us, but you can't avoid your conscience. Um, and we intentionally go during business hours um, directly to the people that are directly responsible for the policies, for the mis- and disinformation that is being peddled to justify the violence and, and the genocide against the Palestinian people. And it is very important for us to be there constantly and persistently for days and days on end. We are there almost daily at these different entrances. We alternate between the entrances. Um, but, you know, again, the, the point of us is that uh, politicians in the United States are able to sanitize their lives, sanitize their daily lives from the impact and the reality of what they do in different parts of the world. It's why we call this um, Kibbutz Blinken, right? So we've heard repeatedly the administration has not been hard enough on settlements, illegal settlements in the West Bank and on stolen uh, land um, throughout uh, Israel. Um, and for us, you know, our, our kind of initial joke was since Blinken is so okay with settlements, then he should be okay with this one. Um, because so often we find that American politicians and folks that are funding, fueling, and normalizing this are somehow okay with it until it's on their soil, until it's in their faith, until it impacts them and their families. And that is the direct reason that we are right here, um, where we do get criticism, where people say, oh, Blinken's family are are innocent to this, or um, something to the effect of, well, doesn't he deserve to rest? Why should Blinken be able to come home at 5 p.m. and rest in this ivory tower with all the security when the children in Gaza and the families in Gaza have no moment of rest with American-made bombs and American-made military um, apparatus being used against them 24-7 with no place to call home, with no security, with no safety? And so there's no such thing as being off hours when a genocide is ongoing and you are directly complicit in peddling lies over and over and over again, including, for example, the lie he peddled about Anurwa and, you know, seeing very credible evidence literally happened while we were right here in these tents that were flooded. And in real time, we saw Gaza, tents in Gaza that were flooded. Obviously, it's no comparison because people in Gaza have no food. It's mass starvation, intentional starvation. Uh, people have no access to warm uh, blankets or clothes or anything where we are able to, you know, to change. And to get people to come bring us towels. But we invited Blinken on that day to come out and join us in these tents. To experience just a tiny, 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 tiny fraction, which isn't even comparable, of what it's like to be in cold, in rain, um, you know, outside on the streets with all the traffic around him. And, of course, he denied and didn't even acknowledge our, our existence out here. But we know that they're impacted by it. Uh, we know because of the changing in all the security around here and also uh, I see his face. I look directly in his face every single morning because I'm on that exact side of the street uh, and I look through the window not even a foot and a half away from his face uh, and I see it and he looks tired, he looks frustrated, he looks beat down. Uh, so does his wife who has no tinting on her windows. We see her face very clearly um, and and to me that is success.
4: Good. Um, Hazami, can you talk a little bit about the uh the legality of these protests, I know that a lot of Americans think that um this is uh you know you'd be swept up by police immediately um this you know they they uh, yeah that that police would be very keen on shutting this kind of protest down, but it is actually very uh very legal and uh a part of our our you know very <laughs> our, our uh quickly waning civil rights um but can you can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Absolutely. I think, um, you know, even I was very intimidated when we first started doing this type of work. Um, We came out to Blinken's house in December, um, and I remember we used to park way down there and walk up this dark, windy street, you know, being really afraid. And now we've literally occupied not only both sides of the street, but all the parking all around this space is now uh, occupied by our group. Um, I think the reality of of legality is a lot of protesters don't know our rights. Um, It's really important to understand local rights. Um, and, and local laws, but then also how those intersect with, for example, protected federal activity of First Amendment rights. Uh, we, for example, uh, know that being here um, in um, Arlington law, which is the Blinken's house is actually on the property line between Arlington and Fairfax, right there literally at that car is the line between Fairfax and Arlington County. So his property is the furthest house uh, on the property line uh, between the different uh, counties. Um, in Arlington County, uh, there are certain restrictions to, to sound ordinance to what you can and cannot do on public spaces. Um, we also pulled the plot of land, um, so I was able to see the actual plot of land and highlighted the fact that actually Blinken fence actually sits feet the um, uh, you know feet um, past their property line, which is something that I'll be following up with the county on separately. It appears that their property line is actually further back and their their gate actually transgresses over public property. So the area that we stand where I took the video from that you showed of Lincoln, um, actually is public property, thus they cannot ask us to leave from that, that location. We remind the police often, they often come trying to bully us, Secret Service tries to bully us. There's a lot of different types of security personnel around here from um, Secret Service to State Department security personnel. Uh, we've seen all t- Types of security when we do things at the Israeli ambassador's home, uh, folks from the State Department get deployed out to us also. Um, but knowing your rights and then also knowing that a lot of police um, and security expect people not to know their rights. So we printed out the plot of land, I print out the legal codes, I plant out all of the um, the items that also show that uh, federal law sometimes trumps local law in the case that religious and political activi- activities are actually protected First Amendment. Um, and so in those cases, the sound ordinance of Arlington County are no longer applicable to us. Now, we have uh, been stopped from using musical instruments um, and big stereos. On the first four days we were here, we had a huge sound system, and I mean huge sound system. We had about 18 megaphones with sirens, spinning around the clock um, and we know it drove them absolutely crazy because the neighbors four houses down who are actually all very supportive of us um, came and told us that their entire house was shaking um, from the sound now that we were uh, told that we can no longer do because of a state law in Virginia that's unfortunately very vaguely written and we are working with an expert team of lawyers now to try to understand because it says you cannot disturb and I quote tranquility of house what does tranquility of house mean how is that defined um, and again, we push back often and say, why is it that people here can live in tranquility of homes protected when, again, they commit atrocities? So we use our voices, which is my, my why my voice is pretty, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 I don't know how to even say that in English. Of course, yeah. Doesn't work well. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, we continue and we have a lot of people that come out through the day and through the night honking their horns. Um, coming to scream with us, and so you know, in unison, when you have thirty, forty, fifty people yelling facing a house, it still delivers a very strong message without the sound equipment.
5: Well, it's it's really in- incredible, and uh, I want to say from my personal perspective, and this is this is why we were so keen to have have you on today and, and let people see what you're doing. I ca- I can think of almost nothing else. That is more important than what you're doing right now. Everything, people. I mean, let me, let me be clear. All of the demonstrations, the rallies, uh, the activism, contacting representatives—it's all important. But there's something so visceral to this because I think it is so easy. It's even easy for us to shut out what's happening in Gaza. But it's even easier if you are protected and coddled by wealth and comfort and by the security apparatus of the United States government. So to pierce through that and tell Anthony Blinken that that there is a direct line between the things he says and does and the murdered babies in Gaza is so important. I think that 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 is absolutely amazing. And not just with Blinken but also with the White House staff. And as you also mentioned uh, the Israeli ambassador, let's take a look at, at your action outside the Israeli ambassador's home in Washington. Good morning, in front of
3: the house of the ambassador of Israel to the United States.
0: of the Ambassador of Israel to the United States,
3: the home of Israel Ambassador, we are here to say, you cannot have a peaceful morning, we will not allow you to have a peaceful morning when a genocide is ongoing. Rise and shine! Rise and shine! Rise and shine!
0: ambassador of Israel to the United States and we are giving him
3: a good morning welcome. We are at all entrances. We have our ready to go. The home of the Israeli ambassador for those that are tuning in to the U.S. We have a shit ton of sound machines. So, so
5: you, you, you call, we just learned the term you use. It's, it's called a blood dump. Uh, you 've also done a blood dump at Raytheon, uh, and, and we can take a quick look at that too and then you can tell us about what what, your, what the message you 're trying to send here as well. So that uh, Raytheon is uh, is uh, is the weapons maker, and so you're also you're so you're hitting the U.S. officials, the White House staff, the Israeli uh, ambassador's home, and the weapons makers like Raytheon. I have a question. Do you take requests? can, 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 I, can I send you a list of? Because I'd like to see I'd like to see a blood dump at the German embassy. Can that be arranged? Am I allowed to take requests? We, uh,
0: <laughs> it's funny. We actually have done quite a bit of stuff that is not yet uh, not public. Um, okay, all right. We've done them at the uh, we've done them at all the weapons manufacturers. Elbit um, Systems, um, Boeing. Uh, Raytheon. Interestingly enough, also a lot of these weapons companies have no signage. Uh, we've done it at APAC. There's not a single sign in front of the American Public Affairs Council that has any signs. We there did what we call dirty money, where we dumped, we threw fake money in the air and started spraying blood all over it, blood water. Um, we also have done them in front of Facebook and Meta, their offices in downtown DC, in front of Google, um, in front of Microsoft, who are all complicit with providing technology to support the apar- apartheid and illegal occupation in both the West Bank and the atrocities in Gaza through spying. Um, And so we we have done these and we continue to do them. Uh, We are taking, we do take some requests. We are additionally starting to target more homes um, in residential neighborhoods. Obviously, there's a bit more trickiness to, you know, the fact that these are very uh, thin roads. And I'm just going to let you see how close our tents are to the main road. This is the main roadway. And you can see huge trucks coming by. And these are our tents uh, where we sleep. And so... Um, you know, we obviously try to make sure that we keep our people safe at all times um, while doing these actions, and I'm just going to let you, uh, you know, see this. But, yeah, if we we are hopefully going to continue to target um, additional people. Again, this is the signage. This is his entrance, exit of his home, and this is directly what his receives. Bloody Blinken, Secretary of Genocide, all of our signage um, around, uh, you know, uh, the genocide that's happening and, and making sure people know and the protests and the signs go on and on on both sides of the road i don't know if you can see
5: those but yeah and that's that's amazing the signs are incredible uh and i'm seeing in the comments now on our live stream people some people in the dc area saying i, I want to come down and join the protest can people do that what? yeah
0: we encourage people to come out uh, specifically from 7 to 9 a.m and 7 to 9 p.m which is when they're home uh, we know from Blinken in a recent uh, interview that he did that he says since he's home a lot, uh, he's away a lot that he tries to use uh, breakfast time as sacred time. We want to make sure that his children hear us and ask the question, Daddy, why are they calling you bloody Blinken? Because uh, that's what I envision they probably ask every time their car comes by us and I say your father is a murderer of babies, baby murderer, baby murderer, um, and we know it's impacting them because they put up, uh, you know, parameter they put up towels on the windows of the cars for the children, which just happened recently actually. A couple days ago. But yeah, people are more than welcome to come join us in the evenings and, and during the day. We do have pretty strict kind of uh, rules and around the use of, of things so we don't get shut down, uh, but we encourage and welcome uh, folks that are willing to come. And uh, again, uh, you know, we, we push the boundary of legal protest um, and staying within the constitutional, yeah. our constitutional yeah. rights and what's legally available to us. Um, and that's how we've been able to continue to do that. And, and, and,
5: and you also want people to stick to the to the basic message what is that right. message what what are the slogans that your your uh, uh
0: yeah so we're really um anchored right now in the ceasefire first and foremost but Frankly, a ceasefire should have happened one, two, three weeks in at this point when you've destroyed a huge majority of the living um, situation in Gaza. ceasefire now seems increasingly obsolete, although we want atrocities to end. We want the violence and bombing to end. We also are asking um, Blinken to stop unconditional aid to Israel, to do a human rights audit on Israel, um, to exercise and look into uh, the Leahy Law and the application of violations of human rights and how, Uh, Countries are not supposed to be eligible to receive aid under our our legal system um, if they commit atrocities uh, and war crimes. Uh, None of that audit is happening, so that's also a pressure point for us. And then also acknowledging um, uh, state-sponsored violence of Israel. We would like Blinken to acknowledge and the administration to acknowledge um, mass atrocities are being committed. Right now, we've only heard Blinken repeatedly say that his heart, oh, my heart is with the people of of Gaza, while simultaneously providing tons of weapons and bypassing Congress to provide additional weapons to Gaza. So we are tired of the hypocrisy. We want um, the, we want an acknowledgement of the violence that is being committed. We want an acknowledgement of the United States' role in that. Whether or not we're going to get it, we will continue to keep the pressure up until hopefully the relationship changes and enough Americans are awakened to call um, to, to take action. And I, and I want to add also, uh, to date, we have given all the 23,000 flyers out all around DC that talk about what is happening on the ground uh, with links to resources and information, calls to action, and just kind of an overview of what's happening. We fly our cars. Uh, we attend, um, you, know, uh, you know, over the holidays we attended Christmas uh, markets and handed these out to strangers. We're trying to meet people where they are outside of the echo chambers of social media which we know um, curates content based on what you're already interested in. And so that's why it's extremely important for us. Um, to meet people where they're at, to flyer, to advocate, to be in the streets. We have a lot of cars stop here and ask us questions. Um, What is happening? Whose house is this? Why are you here? That is an opportunity to educate more people to realize that their tax dollars are being used to do this. No one's an innocent bystander if you are an American taxpayer, and everyone has a role to play. And we saw that type of pressure work during the Vietnam War, during segregation, during apartheid in South Africa, and that's the pressure we're trying to build.
4: Hazami, Barmada, thank you so much uh, for joining us from outside of Blinken's uh, fortress there in the D.C. area. Uh, We would love to have you back on um, and follow these protests. Uh, Hopefully you won't have to be doing it much longer. Hopefully uh, a just um, ceasefire and an end to this uh, genocide uh, and a lasting just uh, resolution. Um, will will happen soon. So thank you so much for all that you're doing and for being with us on the EI live stream. Thank
5: you so much. And please give
4: our greetings
5: and thanks to all of your comrades there. We really appreciate what you're doing.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you guys for having me.
4: Thank really appreciate it.
0: Appreciate you.
4: Thank you. Wow. Well, that was a, that was a mood lifter. Um, I mean, it's really, you
5: know, I, I just have to say when I saw some of those clips circulating, it, it just made me feel like, you know, I, I've taken part in, the, in protests before and it, it is very empowering. I remember during the, uh, back in 2009 after Operation, or 2010, it was a few months after Operation Lead, so-called, one of the first big massacres, Ehud Olmert, the Israeli Prime Minister uh, came to the University of Chicago and I took part with several dozen people in a protest and disruption. We got up one by one and we, we made it impossible for him to speak. And it felt so empowering to, yeah. that they are confronted with the, their crimes. Uh, and I see people saying, you know, they're psychopaths, they don't care. And I think a lot of them probably are psychopaths. But I still think that confronting them with their crimes uh, is important. It's what we can do. Uh, and I just, I just found those videos to be so powerful. And other people see them. They circulate around the world. And it, it just, it, it's so important that they are not insulated from the uh, reality of their crimes.
4: That's right. Yeah, that there are consequences for, for their crimes and that they should not know peace um, you know, when, when they are helping carry out a genocide. Um, Ali, uh, speaking of consequences, um, you wrote a couple of pieces uh, very recently about the um, economic consequences that businesses um, who are either Israeli-owned or do business with Israel uh, are facing because of uh, public revulsion around the world to Israel's genocide. Can you give us a sense of, um, you know, what uh, what's happening, uh, for example, uh, with, um, let's see, the Japanese corporation Itochu um, taking a decision to end its partnership with the Israeli weapons maker Elbit by the end of this month? Um, yeah. And, yeah.
5: Yeah, so we can start there. There's actually a lot to talk about, but let's start with uh, uh, Itochu. This is one of these Japanese firms that most of us have never heard of, but it is a conglomerate that um, is involved in everything from textiles to consumer goods to mining to aviation uh, and probably owns a lot of companies and brands we have heard of. So this is a huge company and they announced uh, just this week that they are ending an agreement with Elbit Systems, which is Israel's largest private weapons manufacturer, and which has made many of the weapons that um, that uh, Israel is using now in its genocide in Gaza. And uh, Tsuyoshi Hachimura, the chief financial officer at Itochu, said that the partnership with Elbit was, quote, based on a request from Japan's defense ministry for the purpose of importing defense equipment for the self-defense forces of Japan, necessary for Japan's security, and is not in any way related to the current conflict between Israel and Palestine. In other words, their agreement pre-existed the genocide. It was actually an agreement signed in March of last year. And at the time it was signed, the Israeli ambassador hailed it as evidence of, quote, deepening relations between Israel and Japan, relations that are based on mutual interests and shared values, end quote. But the decision to end the relationship taken by Itochu clearly is related to the genocide in Gaza. And this is what... uh, Yoshi Hachimura of, uh, of the company said, he said, quote, taking into consideration the International Court of Justice's order on 26 January and that the Japanese government supports the role of the court, we have already suspended new activities related to the Memorandum of Understanding with Elbit and plan to end the Memorandum of Understanding by the end of February. So that's
4: extremely
5: significant.
4: It is, um, and uh, and it, you know, uh, what do you like? You know, after the International Court of Justice's ruling, um, uh, the significance of a major corporation um, not wanting to be implied um you know, in in the complicity with, yeah. uh, with genocide. I mean, do you think that other corporations will follow suit? Sometimes it just takes one for a domino effect.
5: Well, it's already happening and it's not just corporations because the other announcement this week was that uh, the government of Wallonia, which is one of Belgium's three federal regions, suspended arms export licenses to Israel, and th- and it also explicitly cited the ICJ decision, which, as people will recall, um, ordered preventive measures uh, based on its finding that Israel is plausibly accused of genocide. And I think that it's one thing for people to be critical of Israel, but when you have the world's highest court uh, coming and saying, we think that there may well be genocide here. Now, all of a sudden, people are saying, well, what are the legal consequences for me or for my company? And I don't want to be mixed up in genocide. So there is also a history. I think there's a context here, which is that
3: uh,
5: key rulings from the International Court of Justice in the case of Namibia, and this is going back now to the uh, early and mid-1970s, and South Africa's apartheid had that effect. Those rulings, even though, you know, as we've said, that um, the International Court of Justice by itself cannot enforce its rulings, they don't have a a world police force that can go out, these rulings nonetheless have a significant impact because they... uh, they place a legal responsibility on others. If you'll remember, Nora, when we spoke to um, uh, legal expert Susan Akram and Michael Link about the ICJ ruling, they both predicted that these sorts of decisions would start to follow. We also saw this week um, the uh, foreign minister of Spain, actually just yesterday, told uh, Al Jazeera uh, that... um, the uh that that Spain has had uh, frozen arms exports to Israel actually since October seventh mm-hmm. so we see governments starting to do this is it enough absolutely not oh another uh, victory uh is that um uh announced by Palestine action that's the direct action group in the u k and we've spoken uh, to um to them on the Electronic Intifada Livestream, they announced that they were uh, notified by Kuna and Nagel, which is a major Swiss-based international shipping and logistics company, that uh, it had also ended its contract with Elbit Systems and will not be working with the Israeli weapons maker again. And this followed a number of actions by a Palestine action activists at various Kuna and Nagal offices and properties around the UK which involved um, smashing windows, spray painting the inside, uh, uh, breaking into their offices. Uh, th- that's from Palestine Action's uh, press release. Uh, and as we know, Palestine Action has been doing these sorts of activities for years targeting Elbit systems, and and repeatedly its activists have been uh, criminally prosecuted by authorities in the UK for uh, damaging property and breaking and entering and so on, and have been acquitted because they've successfully argued in court that um, their actions are to prevent a greater crime of genocide. And so this shows, uh, relating back to our conversation with Hazami, that this kind of direct action, you know, uh, of course, people are making decisions about staying on, uh, you know, which side of the law they're on. And Palestine action has shown that they are on the right side of the law with these actions, as the, the, the acquittals have shown, uh, that they actually do have an impact. So we're seeing governments now, corporations taking these actions. But let's also let's remember that it is at the grassroots that these things start. It is with protests, yeah. with solidarity, with boycotts, and direct action. And we'll get to that, to more of that in a second. But but go on, Aisa, Sorry. No, it's okay.
6: Um, I, I, yeah, I just wanted to make the point about the, this um, Japanese conglomerate, which I also had, had not heard of, but it is, uh, you know, this massive, massively important um, global conglomerate. It's, you know, I read it's in the Fortune 500. Etosha. Uh, I mean, there's two points to me about the significance of this. Is um, first of all, as you mentioned, the uh, impact of the ICJ ruling. Like we see that already, and you know, you, we mentioned when we've had these discussions before about the impact of the ICJ uh, ruling that Israel is plausibly uh, that South Africa has a plausible case that Israel is carrying out a genocide in the Gaza Strip, um, and that. Israel must stop those actions. Um, there were people, you know, understandably, who got frustrated with the ICJ that it didn't explicitly use the word ceasefire. Um, although, I mean, really, the implication of the only, as as the South Africans said afterwards, the only way the the ruling could be implemented um, is through a ceasefire. Um, but we're now, we're starting to see the material Benefits of that ruling, you know, already in these examples you've you've laid out there and in in your new article I think it's really important and This is I mean we've you know, we've all been reporting or all three of us have been reporting on the BDS movement um, For many many years and you know, especially since the Palestinian uh, Call for BDS in 2005 and I, I, I mean, I don't know about you two, but I can't remember a time ever I mean, there may be one that I can't recall, but I can't remember a time ever when there's been a BDS. I mean, there's so many BDS victories we've reported on over the years, but I can't remember a single time when one of these corporations explicitly said, "Yeah, this is about Israel. This is about these issues. This, 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 this is um, a result of what is happening to the Palestinians." And, and they're not. They're not even. You know, even if they're not necessarily necessarily doing it in a particularly moral way. Um, but they are explicitly confirming it is because of this and that and protest does make a difference. Because normally they try and get out of it and say, well, it's, it had nothing to do. Sometimes they've explicitly said the opposite. Oh, it had nothing to do with the protesters. Um, and it, it was just a contract
4: issue. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
6: Even when we know it did. Yeah. Maybe. Even, when we right. know it even did. though we know that it, in reality it did. But I, I can't remember uh, this ever happening before where they've explicitly said, yeah, this is because of um, you know we support the the Japanese government supports the work of the ICJ of the World Court. Yeah,
5: that's such a good point, Asa. I mean, you know, boycott, divestment, and sanctions, or BDS activists have always said, you know, it's nice when companies acknowledge uh, that they're leaving Israel or boycotting Israel or ending business in Israel. And there've been big companies that have done that as a result of campaigns conglomerates like Veolia, Orange, the big mobile communications firm, and others that have left Israel over the years precisely because of activism. But as you said, Asa, they don't say it's because of that activism. And the response of BDS organizers has always been, well, it doesn't really matter as long as they leave. We know why they left. They know why they left. Uh, but it, I, I do agree, it takes it to another level when you have companies like this saying, yeah, it's because of the ICJ decision. And uh, and so it may well be that we're entering a phase, a new phase where where things will accelerate. And I certainly hope so in yeah. terms of, of this kind of action.
4: Uh, Ali, you also wrote about um, a kind of a, Ad hoc consumer boycott against McDonald's um, and how the you know a, a major uh, you know I think it was the CEO that had to admit that its uh, profits were were uh, were being dented. Um, right.
5: Yeah. So this is a really interesting story because a McDonald's Corporation and we all know uh, who McDonald's is. Um, they held their quarterly. Uh, Uh, sales call or their quarterly uh, call with investors uh, earlier this week and they acknowledged that they have suffered a significant loss of sales in the Middle East uh, since the start of the genocide in Gaza and not just in the Middle East. They were quite explicit in saying um, that uh, it's much broader than that, and it's particularly in uh, places where there are large uh, Muslim consumer markets, including, and they cited specifically, Malaysia and Indonesia. Indonesia, of course, is the world's most populous Muslim-majority country. Um, But they also say, and this is, uh, I'm quoting Chris Kempchinski, the CEO of McDonald's, he says, in a country, for example, like France, that has a larger Muslim population, we are seeing some impact. Uh, and he's, he noted that in France, the drop in sales, quotes, depends very much on where the restaurant is located and if it's in a Muslim area. And that's very significant because it shows really the power of Muslim communities, not just in their own countries, but also in Europe and North America, um, and it's maybe a topic for another day, but uh, in the United States now, we see Muslim organizations and communities organizing against Biden to deny him the vote in the uh, you know in the upcoming U.S. elections. But this shows that uh, that uh, it has a real impact. And while McDonald's wouldn't say they wouldn't put a dollar figure on it, they were very explicit that it is, it is a significant. Impact on their profits uh, across the region, and they said that they didn't expect things to get better until uh, the war ends. Right, and, and yeah.
4: sorry, and I just want to um, uh, point out the reason why people have been boycotting McDonald's. Um, yeah, talk a little bit about that.
5: Yeah, I mean, this this is on a number of levels. That let's say there's McDonald's specific. Uh, uh, Issues And then I think there's a broader uh, response. Uh, The McDonald's-specific issues is, as many people may know, McDonald's business model is franchising. The vast majority of McDonald's restaurants you see are not owned and operated by McDonald's Corporation. They're owned and operated by franchisees who have to invest a lot of their own money to buy and set up these restaurants. And then they share the profits with McDonald's. They pay royalties to McDonald's. And so that's how the company makes most of its money. So in Israel, the uh, McDonald's Israel franchise, after October 7th, announced that they were giving away thousands of free meals to the uh, Israeli soldiers taking part in the genocide in Gaza. And this produced a huge backlash across the region uh, in Arab countries and in Turkey uh, in particular. And some of the McDonald's franchises in those countries tried to counter it by distancing themselves from uh, what McDonald's Israel had done. And some of them even announced that, that they were giving uh, sums of money uh, to uh, in support of humanitarian aid for Palestinians in Gaza, but it didn 't work because people uh, and, and you, you you hear this argument i 'll say more about this, but I just came back a couple of days ago from Jordan, and the argument you hear sometimes from business people is well you know it, yes it 's mcdonald 's, but it 's locally owned and operated, and the employees are local people. So we shouldn't punish them. But people didn't buy that. And uh, McDonald's had to admit that it has suffered a significant business impact. Again, not just in the Middle East, not just in Malaysia and Indonesia, but in other countries where there are significant Muslim populations showing their uh, consumer power. And the other company that's been... uh, uh, affected, that admitted it's been affected, is Starbucks. Again, another iconic brand name. Uh, And they had to admit that they've taken a hit. They claim to be, you know, neutral. They say we have no political agenda. But in fact, what happened um, a few weeks ago was that the Starbucks Workers' union. Uh, put out a tweet in support of Palestinian rights and the Starbucks Corporation repudiated it and actually sued the union uh, for infringing on its trademark because they said the union's logo and name are too similar to Starbucks and people will confuse that their position with Starbucks. But in fact, Starbucks was pandering to uh, right-wing anti-Palestinian media and politicians in the United States who objected to the tweet by the Starbucks Workers' Union. So far from being neutral, Starbucks was actually uh, rejecting support for Palestinian rights and trying to appease the right wing. Uh, What it actually did was it um, enraged everyone, and as a result of boycotts uh, by supporters of Palestinian rights and by opponents of Palestinian rights, it saw a measurable drop in its business and revenues. But I think there's a bigger picture here. So you can point at those specifics related to McDonald's and um, Starbucks, uh, but I think what's mostly driving this is a general revulsion at the role of the United States and the West. And this kind of consumer boycott is one of the few direct ways people have of making decisions which they see as supporting uh, Palestinian rights and punishing the countries or governments or corporations they see as responsible. So when I was in Jordan, uh, and I, I, I just came back a few days ago to the United States, it's very apparent that boycotting McDonald's, and not just McDonald's, but pretty much every Uh, major American brand and some European brands like Carrefour, the supermarket chain and Nescafe is now a cultural norm to the extent that, you know, Coca-Cola and Pepsi, which were extremely popular in Jordan, you don't see them at restaurants anymore. People are now serving uh, local alternatives or or, uh, other brands which are not in the public mind associated with the United States. And that's become the norm. If you were to walk around with a Coca-Cola, people would be upset at you. And and you'll hear people saying, oh, yeah, you know, that you drive past McDonald's and it's empty. And that's very satisfying to them. So I think this is part of a bigger uh, phenomenon that is not necessarily about the specifics of those countries, but just a general rejection of these brands and saying, you know, we want to make known to the United States that there is a price. There are consequences for your role in this genocide
4: indeed uh well, thank you so much, Ali, for uh giving us uh, those reports and of course we're gonna um continue to follow the uh the consumer boycotts and the the divestment um you know uh, uh, maneuvers by major corporations. Uh, and of course, uh, sanctions. I mean, this is it's, it's quite a time for um, for people to be uh, able to move uh, the boycott movement uh, like they've been doing recently. Um, incredible. OK, so we're going to uh, turn to John now for his analysis uh, of the Palestinian resistance and their maneuvers. Um, and then uh, we're going to have a discussion afterwards about um, the possible ceasefire um, and any news related to uh, political negotiations. Hello, John. Um, what's been happening on the ground in Gaza while well, all of this has been going on?
7: Hey, guys. Yeah. Well, we're we're moving um, forward on the ceasefire. Talks, but um, the war on the Palestinian civilian population has continued unabated. Um, we're, we're seeing the same level of airstrikes and targeting of civilians um, that that hasn't uh, tapered off at all. The Israelis are not uh, the Israeli troops are not as deep into territory as they have been um, in, in recent weeks. Um, But the airstrikes are continuing and killing 150 people a day, um, still targeting hospitals, um, still dismantling um, the civic infrastructure of the Gaza Strip, um, while showing very few um, significant military gains um, to justify this brutal genocide that we've been watching now uh, entering its fifth month. Um, so Maureen reported, uh, and you reported, Nora, earlier on in the show about some of the satellite imagery that's come out um, from the Gaza Strip that we're going to show you here um, to give just give people a sense of what it looks like when we're talking about 35,000 airstrikes, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of tank shells um, targeting the civilian infrastructure in the Gaza Strip as a response. Um, to the October 7th military assault, which collapsed the Gaza division and cast the Israeli security establishment um, into disrepute within the society in Israel. And so what we're seeing is the Israeli military um, taking it out on the civilian population in the Gaza Strip as an attempt to sort of reburnish their reputation um, within their society. Um, and so, what we're looking at there is a map of Gaza um from the north to the south um and and largely what we're seeing there is targeting uh this is satellite data from the seventeenth of January, so it's actually uh two weeks old it's from the middle of of january um, and so it's been added to uh in this time but maybe we can scroll through some of this tomorrow and see uh what it is that we're looking at because um the uh, Guardian has taken some of this um, satellite imagery that was available um, and sort of dug down into what we're looking at um, for the total destruction of the Gaza Strip, more than 200,000 housing units destroyed. Um, And so uh, we've seen this kind of destruction in various ways, um, but to see it overall on these maps, Um, is really astonishing Um, and it's coupled with um, Israeli videos um, of their demolitions. Um, And so what we're seeing is a comprehensive attack, a systematic dismantling of civilian life in the Gaza Strip. And we know that that doesn't match uh, Israeli estimates of the dismantling, what they're saying is the dismantling of the Qassam Brigades and Hamas in Gaza. Um, where Israeli and American intelligence estimates put the degrading of the fighting force and the tunnel apparatus in the Gaza Strip at less than 25%. But what we're looking at here is almost total destruction of the civilian population, 80% in the north of buildings destroyed, um, and you can see just in this kind of, uh, of imagery, each and every one of these is, is a house, is a family. These are apartment towers that you're looking at right there. 20-story um, buildings with, um, you know, hundreds of families living in one building, um, completely erased. And so this is in the north. Um, and if we move down, it, it's targeting, um, of course, the started in the north, um, and then the attack moved down to Gaza City. Um, and you can see uh, the areas here in the center uh, of Gaza moving into towards Gaza City um, and largely we're looking at um, the built up areas because as we've talked about a number of times if you just look at that, that, that total destruction um, and, and what we've talked about on this show a number of times is that um, the Gaza Strip has built up densely populated areas and around it are farmlands in the areas that used to be Israeli settlements. So even the areas that we aren't seeing in red in the, in the zoomed out maps are actually farmland um, and not civilian um, uh, buildings like this. This area is showing the area of Jabalia to Gaza City, um, just total destruction. Um, And that's what Israel has been doing, not a targeted military operation, um, but a genocide against the population where the red blots cover the entire area. Again, this is satellite imagery from the middle of January of bomb damage um, from Israeli airstrikes, just totally covering the entire area. And the Israeli Defense Ministry the other day bragged about how they have received 250 cargo planes uh, worth of uh, weapons and materiel from the United States. um, More than 20 um, container ships full of weapons, um, totaling more than 10,000 tons. These are American weapons shipped to Israel throughout this 124 days at a rate of two cargo planes a day. Um, unloading this equipment and, and then having it be dropped um, on the Palestinian population um, in the Gaza Strip. And, and we've seen the Israelis do this um, through their TikTok videos that we also learned this week from a report from Haaretz um, that it's the Israeli operations directorate that is behind these TikTok videos that are released. Um, One particular channel, um, one channel in particular that uh, is very popular uh, within Israel, which shows torture, um, gore um, and destruction. Um, And and that 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 has been a military that came from the Israeli military, which we, of course, knew all along. It came from the Israeli military. We saw them um, stage the arrests, the mass arrests. And, and force Palestinian civilians to walk towards them with guns um, that they said that they had, which they clearly didn't have. Um, and then these, these um, social media videos um, get disseminated throughout Israeli society um, and they're coming from the Israeli army. This is a goal of the Israeli army um, to create this destruction and to show that to their population that that's what they're doing. Um, not targeting Qassam, not destroying the militants, um, but targeting the civilian population, um, humiliating them, arresting them, stripping them naked, torturing them, um, um, destroying the the entire infrastructure of the Gaza Strip, the schools, the hospitals. That's the only thing that's been systemically um, targeted. There's no sign in any of um, the Israeli military reporting of anything like the 10,000 fighters that they said have been killed by the Israeli military, according to Israeli numbers, um, which is more than the total number of men killed in the Gaza Strip. Because we know, um, as you said at the beginning of the show, Nora, that um, 75% of the targets of this war have been women and children. Um, And so even the Israeli numbers of what they say are dismantling um, the Qassam Brigades are just clearly not true. Um, And the New York Times, actually, for the first time, 120 odd days into the war, for the first time reported on um, the way that these TikTok videos have been disseminated uh, within Israeli society, Um, despite the fact that this has been going on. And you can see here in this grid map that Tamara is showing us, um, these are the mines that the Israelis have laid and these buildings. Um, and blown them up. Entire neighborhoods that we're seeing, examples of um, neighborhood after neighborhood just flattened um, for for no military purpose. Um, Later on in this file, we see um, Israeli soldiers blowing up a neighborhood, and they're saying on the camera that we're blowing up 21 houses um, in in, in honor, whatever you want to call it, for the 21 soldiers who were killed in Magazi when they were laying. Um, that, let's show the clip here. So we're going to destroy 21 houses in the terrace in for the memory of the soldiers that were killed. So you're seeing absolutely no military purpose to what's going on. Um, the original Maghazi attack was to destroy 10 houses in the middle camps area. And here we have soldiers saying they're destroying 21 houses in the Khan Yunus area um, as revenge. This is a revenge operation um, that the Israelis are carrying out. And despite their claims that they're dismantling um, Hamas in the Gaza Strip, um, their own intelligence shows that, um, that Hamas has reconstituted itself in the areas which we reported on right from the beginning when Israel said that they had Um, absolute control over the north, and it was obvious uh, months ago that they didn't have that. It's even more obvious now um, when their forces um, have had to reinvade Gaza City in order to um, try to have some sort of... That's Israel University that we're watching there just be vaporized. Um, All seven universities in the Gaza Strip have been destroyed, and we've seen Israeli soldiers stand in front of these demolitions and say things like, oh, now there's not any more engineers in the Gaza Strip because they destroyed these universities Um, and so you can see clearly the intent and I guess that's what the ICJ was dealing with um, here is because normally in genocide, the intent is the difficult thing to prove. For the Israelis, the intent is the easiest thing to prove um, because there's absolutely no military objective to vaporizing these neighborhoods. Um, they're trying to make the Gaza Strip unlivable for the civilian population. And, and in these videos that we haven't showed for this war, I haven't showed these videos because I, I think they're disgusting and appalling. Um, you can see them on social media and here they're cheering. The soldiers are cheering um, for this destruction uh, of a civilian neighborhood. Um, so maybe we can go to number nine tomorrow because um, in Khan Yunus the other day, while the Israelis were demolishing. This is the poorest people in the Gaza Strip, um, people living in makeshift huts um, in Khan units. And here comes a D9 bulldozer flattening its way for no military purpose through the poorest people in the Gaza Strip's homes. Um, and he emerges here in his bulldozer with pieces of the, of the family's homes all over the bulldozer. And there's a Qassam fighter waiting for him right there. Um, and the shot hits the cage of the vehicle um, a, a direct hit on the bulldozer that's demolishing these houses um, what we're looking at for the for the listening audience is uh, ramshackle houses made of corrugated metal um, and sheets and we have a bulldozer, an armored bulldozer, provided by Caterpillar, speaking of boycott, Which
5: I'm, is in Illinois, you. just a few miles away. The United
7: uh, States Caterpillar Company, company here. Yeah. And then you can see this fighter, literally two fighters, because we have a cameraman and a shooter, um, standing right in front of the, the, the vehicle, the D9 armored bulldozer, and then escaping back to their base through the tunnels. Um, So I just wanted to show that one video. Um, How how do you think the bulldozer crew uh, came out of that? That is for sure two fatalities. There's no question. You can see um, the weapon, which is an 85-millimeter tandem charge. You can see it detonate twice, um, once inside the cab. Um, And so Israel did uh, acknowledge two killed um, in in Khan Yunus. Um, this week. But as we've reported a number of times on this program, Israel's not being forthcoming with their casualties. Um, And despite the fact that they said that they were going to report every day on their casualties, they haven't been doing that in the new year. Um, And they're doing it um, largely to cover up these kind of, um, you know, these kind of morale, they're trying to keep the morale in their forces up long enough
5: no, but, but the uh, John, John when, the, when the Israelis do announce this, like this they, they say that these uh, soldiers died in combat defending Israel. Does that look like combat to
7: you? No, this, this is, I, I can't stress enough that this is the poorest section uh, of the Gaza Strip, um, the most impoverished people who are living here with corrugated metal housing. Um, and you have an Israeli military that decided one morning that the target of their day's operations are going to be to flatten, um, to flatten this makeshift camp, um, and and honestly, that video is one of the most um, just straightforward street justice videos um, that we've seen uh, in this war. The way that that bulldozer has people's homes um, hanging off of it at the moment it's struck by the Palestinian fighters. I just wanted to show that. Um, in 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 context of these destruction of the satellite imagery of destruction, which makes it difficult because when we show the satellite imagery, it's all splotched with red, um, and it's hard to understand what we're looking at with the, the the totality of the destruction. But this video here shows you what it looks like. This is one of the ways that they demolish houses. They they demolish them sometimes with bulldozers, brick by brick and they show videos of it. They showed one the other day where they lifted the chair out of the house and put it to the side um, while they slowly recorded a TikTok video destroying a house that has no military objective. We watched them blow up that university, Israel University. um, No military objective. In fact, the schools that the Israelis are blowing up, the United Nations schools and the universities, were used by the Israelis as military bases. So we know that there's actually, A, no tunnels in those schools because the Israelis use them as a base. We know that they're not being used by the Kassam Brigades because the Israelis are using them as a base. And then when they leave and withdraw, which they're doing right now, um, in large numbers withdrawing from the Gaza Strip, um, uh, they destroy as they're leaving. Um, and so I, we, we will show... Um, more of those uh, uh, coming up, but uh, when we're talking about the ceasefire and what Israel is trying to accomplish, um, I just always want to start these resistance videos by showing that the target of this war is civilians and we've reported on it for four full months now. Um, but I just wanted to start off with that and we'll we'll get into some resistance videos. Um, this is from the middle camps area um, of, of, of the Gaza Strip. This is the Baraj battalion. Um, and and we watched this video uh, a few weeks ago, Kassam released this video. This is a fighter with a Yassin approaching a Namur troop carrier that has 12 soldiers in it and hitting it at the front um, where the engine is um, and where the controls are for this vehicle. This video cut off here in the original video that the Kassam Brigade's shown. Um, but you can see in this extended clip that the... Um, the fighters are firing on the troop carrier to prevent the evacuation um and as the fighter that we watched fire the scene is walking away he says this is revenge for my family god willing this is revenge for my family and the other fighter says yeah man um and we didn't see that in the first original video but kasam released this extended cut of this um and and I want to just point this out because and I have been throughout this war Um, of the way that these fighters are honoring um, both their community that they're living in, but also the fighters um, that came before them. And this is a fighter very clearly saying, this is revenge for my family, which is part of the war. um, And we'll talk about it more in the ceasefire uh, conversations next. But one of the things that one of the officials at the ceasefire said was that um, Kassam wanted to have uh, a ceasefire because we're killing their families? That was from a participant in the ceasefire meetings, um, you know, tacitly admitting that the targets of these of this war are the families of the fighters, um, and and less the fighters themselves. Um, and so that's a video from the Barej Battalion. We saw a couple videos previously from the Barej Battalion um, where they gave shout-outs um, to their military leadership who are from the middle camps. And we saw the one from Shuja'iya where um, the fighters left a message in the house that said, um, from this home, we destroyed three armored vehicles. So Palestinians going back to their homes uh, and finding these messages. And we're going to see more and more of that um, as Palestinians do go home, um, which they will do. Um, from this displacement, um, we 're going to see these kind of messages um, from the resistance so um, and this is another message number two tomorrow here. This is in Magazi camp. Um, these are fighters again moving through the buffer zone freely um, here and coming out and we 're going to see a fighter with a Yasin made in the Gaza Strip um, uh, with the munition used from unexploded Israeli bombs and repurposed, put into these weapons and fired back at the Israelis. So that's the shot that we just saw hitting the back door of the tank, which is the weakest spot. Now we're seeing a fighter fire a Yasin from an elevated position, which effectively acts like an air force, um, shooting the tank from an angle that they're not uh, equipped to handle as well as the down below shots. And so we see here a fighter being instructed by a commander. That's an armored bulldozer and a Merkava tank. Um, and the commander says to the fighter, he says, let's put this one on the table of the war cabinet um, during these ceasefire negotiations. We're also seeing here um, tactical vests that we're seeing. Um, that we haven't seen very much of in this fight, um, suggesting that there's still significant fighting elements of the Kassam brigades um, that haven't entered this fight yet. Which is the same in 2006 when uh, Hezbollah defeated the Israelis um, without their uh, most significant units even entering the battle. Um, and so, so this is again the middle camps. This is um, the middle camps uh, brigade, the barrage battalion. Um, that we've shown a number of times because the the resistance in the middle camps um, has been fierce uh, throughout this war um, And then let's do uh, number three here tomorrow. This is um, in to This is a fighter. He picks up his 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 Yasin and he says this one's for Sheikh Salah Salah Aruri who we reported on was assassinated in Beirut um, the leader of the Qassam Brigades um, in the West Bank um, who was assassinated by Israel, um, and so you see a fighter here hitting a D9 armored bulldozer um, with his yassin, saying, um, this is for, he says, the, the direct translation is this is for the eyes of, of, of Sheikh Salah, so like an eye for an eye, the revenge. Um, and, and so these fighters, while they're fighting with skill, um, well-trained, well-disciplined fighters. Um, they're also throwing in these little, um, these little nuggets um, of respect for the fighters that came before them, um, of acknowledging their communities um, during this fight. Now we're watching a video. Uh, and,
5: and if I could just say, John, it's also a reminder because I heard uh, 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 Blinken say this. And we'll talk more about Blinken uh, again. Uh, but in the press conference yesterday in Qatar, Uh, He said, again, and this is something American officials often say, that the October 7th attacks, that Hamas, that that has nothing to do with the Palestinian people. Of course, they're disingenuous because they are full participants in this genocide against the Palestinian people. But they try to make this rhetorical separation between Hamas and the resistance in general on the one hand and the Palestinian people on the other And what these fighters are constantly reminding us is that they are the sons, the husbands, the fathers of communities that support them, just the way uh, the Vietnamese people supported their resistance, the way South Africans supported their resistance, the way people in every situation support their their men and women of the resistance. Uh, And I just think that's an important point to make, that that these resistance fighters are not, as um, uh, Blinken and others would like us to believe, monsters or space aliens who dropped from the sky and have nothing to do with this society. They're defending their community. They're defending their country. They're giving their lives in a cause that they believe in and that we believe in. And it has to be said, and that billions of people in the world believe in. This resistance is legitimate, and they're fighting for a just cause. And they're telling, they're reminding us of that, and they are rebuking the likes of Blinken, who try to demonize and dehumanize them as so-called terrorists, when we can all see what they're doing here. They are fighting a monstrous U.S.-backed army that is murdering children and elderly and destroying universities and homes for no reason. And at that point, can't be made enough because we also get this kind of liberal talking point constantly that you have to condemn the resistance if you're going to criticize Israel. And I I just think enough of that.
7: Yes, we don't condemn the resistance, that's for sure, on this show. Um, So the the, the Israelis have had to um, effectively reinvade um, the Gaza, uh, the, the 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 Gaza City area of Gaza, because um, it's been very clear to everybody that um, Hamas was not dismantled, neither um, Kassam brigades, the military wing, um, but also the municipal services, the civil defense um, is still operating, digging people um, out of the rubble. The the first thing that the Palestinians did when the Israelis withdrew from Gaza City was try to re. Um, rehabilitate, uh, I'm not even sure what the word you use when these hospitals have been dismantled like this, but um, to try to rehabilitate Shifa Hospital. Um, the civil defense, the municipal services, the policing um, in the north still exists as do the fighters in such a way that we're able to see these videos responding um, to to claims that we hear um, in the media that the Qassam Brigades are able to respond and communicate with us through um, these videos, that the um, resistance has been able to um, continue in the north that we've reported on the whole time, but also that the, c- the civilian services, the governance of Hamas, um, which is also part of the people, is still um, in- intact. And part of the, the ceasefire negotiations um, are to address that, the fact that Hamas is still... Um, able to carry out these municipal services, um, despite the blockade, the starvation, um, the man-made starvation in the Gaza Strip, um, that that Israel's military objectives um, haven't been reached even in a modicum, um, even by their own numbers. They're saying that um, more than 80% of the tunnel network is still um, intact, and they were using that number. 80 um, percent, based on 350 miles of tunnels, but the Israelis are saying now that they believe there's 450 miles of tunnels. Um, so you're talking about in 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 excess of 80 percent from the Israelis' own numbers. Um, and I'm sure as soon as the war's over, um, Kassam will tell us what percentage of the um, of the tunnels are still intact but this is the attack on the IDF's attack on Gaza City they said we're concentrating our efforts on Hamas's attempts to rehabilitate in the north all police stations were attacked that's what they said um, the other day so they're they're not attacking the military of Qassam. they're attacking um, the civilian uh, police force um, at, at, and so we could just see with all of these examples um, that the civilians are the target um, of, of this. Um, so let's do number four here tomorrow. We can see um, in Gaza City where it took three divisions of the IDF to take um, originally to move into Gaza City. Here we see fighters from the Qasam brigades moving through the city, um, passing their Yassins um, in order to get between buildings. Um, that have been the walls have been blown out of by the Israelis in order to reach this Merkava four um, Israeli tank from above, which is um, they were down on the ground floor and we watched in the video as they climbed up um, to get an elevated shooting position um, and and showing their fighters both with the camera and here we're seeing the burning tank where some people have asked. Um, what the impact is of these uh, Yassins hitting these tanks. And we don't see it, as I talked about last show, because the fighters are disciplined and well-trained in order to fire and then get out of the way um, before return fire happens. So we often don't see um, the tank destruction. But there we see there um, a brand new 75-ton Israeli tank um, burning, being hit by a Palestinian-made Yassin warhead that's used, um, that's created from Israeli bombs that, um, that didn't explode, that are dropped. And we know that those are all over the Gaza Strip right now. Um, and so after this generation of warfare, maybe we can pause it right here tomorrow. Look at this shot right there um, to give you a sense right there um, of, of that. Again, I talked about it last week, but that's just military vandalism. To leave a building intact like that, but to blow out its walls Um, You're not serving any military purpose for the IDF, Um, you're actually just giving Palestinian fighters um, a high point from which to fire down um, on the Israeli vehicles from. Um, And that's what we're seeing. This is a home destroyed for a Palestinian family, um, but not a military objective um, for the Israelis. So we're seeing that the ability in Gaza City for the fighters to move around the city still we're still seeing them choose the weapons that are appropriate for the situation. We're not seeing anything that looks like running out of um, of weaponry now entering the five the fifth month of this war. Um, Kassam themselves have admitted to firing, um, to striking, uh, to using more than 1,000 um, Yassin so far in this war. Um, and so that's that's a shot from Gaza City, um just to give people a sense of what's happening in Gaza City. Maybe we can go to number five now tomorrow um again, using the rubble moving through these destroyed buildings in order to stay off of the street, and this is an excavator um that's being hit, so it's not as um as armored as up armored as the tanks are, and so we see him uh, this yes um Kassam fighter. Um, using an appropriate warhead for that vehicle. Now we're seeing a second one from an elevated height um, using a different warhead. This is a third shot of a fighter moving into the street and hitting a tank from the street. And now we're seeing here is a sniper operation um, that took place uh, in the Gaza Strip uh, the other day. And the Israelis admitted to this middle uh, officer here uh, being hit, he's a a deputy commander of the Shaldag unit, which is an Air Force uh, Special Operations unit um, whose mission is to, quote, uh, deploy undetected into hostile environments. And when we come back around to the sniper, we'll see that um, that he's definitely detected because we see a Kassam sniper unit here using an Al Ghul uh, Palestinian made uh, sniper rifle um, and there's, we're seeing the fighter inside the building use his full weapon is inside the building, unlike the Israelis that we've seen that poke their guns, um, out of the buildings and are seen. We can see this fighter is completely inside the building. He's using books to stabilize himself. He's using sandbags to stabilize himself. And because the Kassam brigades are doing so much reconnaissance, it, it appears that they're able to. To, to determine who the commander in this unit was and target the commander. Um, and we, we cut off the end of the strip to keep the, the end of this scene to keep this um, video online. But the the soldier is hit and the Israelis admitted that the deputy commander um, was killed. And, and like you said, Ali, Yedio Aranot said that this uh, this commander died in a confrontation um, which, that certainly doesn't look like what we're seeing there. Um, but also, just to note, Channel 12, the largest uh, TV channel in Israel, pointed out that this commander was responsible for the Shifa operation, where the soldiers went into Shifa hospital, um, dismantled the hospital, and then took trophy pictures inside the hospital. Channel 12, um, while celebrating, this commander said that he was in charge of the Shifa Hospital operation. Um, so again, we're seeing Palestinians not only existing and operating throughout the north, moving around freely throughout the north, um, but we see them selecting the target here um, and and selecting the commander and hitting the commander. So you're seeing Palestinian weapons being used um, with great skill by Palestinian fighters against targets who are um, symbolically um, the people who I believe will go down in history as the people who dismantled Shifa Hospital. I don't think history is going to reflect on Shifa Hospital and the dismantling of the hospitals in the Gaza Strip um, in the way that they dealt with it in the moment, um, coming up with excuses um, that that filled the news cycle while Israel was dismantling um, the hospital. So. Um, that's that's in Gaza City, um, and that's the Al Ghul sniper rifle, named after um, the first Qassam um, Brigade's uh, weapons commander, whose um, whose vision for the resistance was to get these weapons into the hands of all of their fighters, rather than having a few, um, you know, uh, um, amazing weapons that they would get um, middle of the road weapons um, that are usable for um, into the hands of every fighter, and that's what we're seeing. Um, 20 years um, after Adnan Al-Ghul's assassination, we're seeing fighters using these weapons that are made in the Gaza Strip, that are able to be used by all different fighters um, in quantity. And that was the vision of Adnan Al-Ghul. And here, his rifles being used to um, to snipe the the commander of the Shifa Hospital. Um, operation. Maybe we'll go down into the south now tomorrow, number six. Um, so I wanted to show people this. This is a um, a field report. This is what we see um, throughout the day, all day for the 125 days of this war. Um, Qassam puts out um, and Sarayal Quds and the other factions as well, put out these very simple field reports. And this field report is three lines of Arabic. Um, translated it basically says that after returning from the battle lines to their bases, our fighters confirmed that a convoy uh, of Zionist vehicles was ambushed, and our fighters detonated three explosive devices previously planted against the tank and targeted another tank with an, uh, an Al-Yasdine 105 shell in the Al-Amal neighborhood of west of Khan Unis. So that, that...
1: Welcome back. And uh, that was a uh, humanitarian and military analysis of the situation uh, in Gaza. And that was from uh, Electronic Intifada, uh, one of the primary sources on uh, the war, uh, the siege upon Gaza. That's going to conclude our program uh, for today. You've been listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Thursday, February 8th, uh, 2024. And we've been broadcasting live uh, from our studios uh, in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access uh, to this program, all you need to do is go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website at uh, blogspot.com. That's patafricanews.blogspot.com. We'll close out uh, with the music of the legendary guitarist, uh, Tiny Grimes, from a 1958 release entitled Blues Groove. This is uh, Abayomi azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.